It's been about three months now that we've been surveying the benefits that we have from Christ and the gospel when we believe on him that we receive all sorts of benefits. And we've been looking at the benefits that we have in this life, especially. And then last week, we began to look at the benefits that we have after this life, beginning with the benefits we have in the intermediate state, the time between our death and the return of the Lord Jesus. And today we're going to look at the benefits that we have on the day of resurrection at the last day and the benefits that will come to us in that day. There's a whole array of benefits that, um, that we, we could refer to. And I want to go ahead and uh, move to our question today, which is question 38, where we're told of the the benefits that we have in the resurrection. So question 38, let's, let's confess this together. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Perhaps one of the most glorious confessions of this hope of the resurrection is the one that's found in Job chapter 19 on the lips of Job. In case anyone listening does not know the story of Job, he was a faithful, godly man who was sorely tested by the Lord. In a single day, Job was told, of Sabian raiders who killed his servants and stole his oxen and his donkeys, of fire that fell from heaven and consumed his sheep and other of his servants along with them, of three bands of Chaldean raiders who took his camels and killed the rest of his servants, and then of a cyclone that killed all of his sons and daughters. Not long after this, Job was also afflicted with painful boils over his entire body, from his head to his toe. Now, Job responded to all of this with faith, submitting to the Lord with great patience, in a fairly remarkable way. His wife became bitter and counseled him to curse God. So here he had more affliction from one that was near him. And his friends came. And instead of helping him in this time, they accused him of wrongdoing because of the trouble that he was having. The idea was, Job, this all must have happened to you because you've done something bad and you're unwilling to deal with it. You need to repent and turn to God. That was the last thing that Job needed at this time when that wasn't at all the case. What a terrible thing it was for him to face. Here he is struggling under all these things under the hand of God. And now his friends telling him, Job, you are an insincere man. All of this was a sure sign, they said, that God has rejected you. Where does Job go for comfort in these times? Where would you go for comfort in such times? Well, he looks to the resurrection where believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted 
in the day of judgment. No one can, no accusation can stand against the innocent in that day. Openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. So no longer will we have all the infirmities that we have now, but we will be able to enjoy walking with God and with each other without all the trouble. So let me read Job chapter 19 to you. This is the word of God. And here we have Job confessing his hope in the resurrection. Job 19, beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? Now he's talking to his friends now who are accusing him, right? Verse 3, these ten times you have reproached me, you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, have pity on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? And are not satisfied with my flesh. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know. That in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Now, I mean, how my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him, since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Okay, now I want you to take note especially of verses 23 through 29 here. Because, you know, here is... this Job was in a, in a severe test of his faith here. But in the middle 
of the deep trial. Sometimes your thoughts go wrong when you're in the middle of a big trial like this. But in the middle of it, Job came back to his true resting place. And particularly verses 25 through 27, where he confesses his hope in the resurrection. Basically, that he will be raised up in glory and that he will be openly acquitted and that he will be made perfectly blessed. And why is it that he will have all of those things? It's because his Redeemer lives. He's trusting in the Lord. Christian, this is your hope in the resurrection if you are in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Let's look at this hope. First, it is a hope that you will be raised up in glory. In the resurrection, your body will be raised up in glory. Now, it is very clear that you're not in glory now, isn't it? You're rather in a world of sin and suffering. Your body is fallen. In, in, your body in this fallen world and your body itself is dying. It will rot and it will return to the dust, as God said unless Jesus comes back before your body's had a chance to rot. You're clearly not living, though, in the realms of glory just now. But at the resurrection, your body will be raised up in a new place, the place that is called glory. It's important to know what glory is. Glory is the place where God is fully manifested or revealed. It's what we call heaven. It could be any location but it's where God is fully revealed to us, the place where he is present in a way that we can commune with him and know him in fullness. Job refers to being raised up in glory in verse 26 when he says, in my flesh, I shall see God. So you see, that's what, that's what the glory is. Um, and then uh, he says of his body that will rot in the grave. Look look at the whole verse, Job 19, 26. He says, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. So Job had faith in the power of God, that even though his skin was actually rotting away on him, even at that time with all the boils and everything, and he knew it would completely decompose eventually, God would raise him up to life again. He knew that when God did that, he would be raised up in glory before God. When Jesus was on the earth, there was a party of Jews that was called the Sadducees. And they did not believe in the resurrection. They wondered how God could raise up the body of a man that had been eaten by a lion or that had been burned to ashes with fire. Jesus told them that they erred because they knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. If God can make man, how is it hard for him to raise up our bodies? He proved the resurrection from God's own declaration to Moses. Jesus did from God's own declaration to Moses that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Keep in mind that when Moses lived that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had already been dead for centuries. Jesus points out to the Sadducees that God is not the God of the dead, 
but the God of the living, so that when he says that they are his God, it means that they're still in his care. And whatever complications there may be to raising up their bodies and giving them the inheritance that God had promised them, God is able to overcome all of those things. The scriptures say that he is still committed to them. And the the truth is that God will fulfill all that he has spoken concerning them, bringing them the blessing that he promised. Raising up a body is no problem for God. Jesus tells us in John 5, 28 through 29, that he himself will call everyone up from the graves and that they will be brought before him to be judged. The resurrect, it is what we call the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, believers and unbelievers. Paul explains that the people who are alive in that day will also be raised up in glory. Both the dead and the living will be raised up in glory. Now, we will leave this present realm, which is not the realm of glory, and we will be brought into the realm of glory where God is. Job highlights the most wonderful part about all this, that in our flesh, we will see God. In our flesh, we will see God. This is what Jesus prayed for in his great high priestly prayer that he prayed just before he died. That his people would actually see God and see his glory, that they would be brought there. He said, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. We cannot begin to compromise how marvelous it will be. God has given us only glimpses of his glory in this world. Yes, there's a great manifestation of his glory in Jesus Christ that we have. But when we are raised up, We will be in the fullness of glory. We will comprehend the glory of God. We will be able to see the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. It will be what we see of him now. It will make what we what we will see what we see of him now to be like we have a veil on. I mentioned that this morning that like we have a uh, the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament revelation makes the Old Testament like we have a veil on. Well, it's going to be that again when we go to the, be with him in glory. That's why Jesus says in verse 24 that they may behold my glory, which you have given me for you love me before the foundation. And then in verse 26, he adds, I have declared to them your name. In other words, I've told them all about you. I've told my disciples all about you and will declare it. He's going to tell them more that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So we will see his beauty and his majesty, his power, his wisdom, his mercy, his justice, his kindness, his truth, his faithfulness in the realms of glory, in a place where it will be impossible for you to ever be bored. We will be entirely surrounded by the majesty and glory of God, the inexhaustible glory of our Father in heaven. You know how even little things in this world can, can very much captivate you, and you can spend hours and hours you know, doing something, a new game, or, or whatever it might be, look, you know, enjoying something that you have. How much for the infinite God to think about that. 
Best of all, we will be able also to bear up under this glory of God that we'll be brought to. You know what happens when God appears in just a little bit of glory to people, right? Those who are brought before him and see something of his majesty and his strength, they are unable to bear up. They see his holiness. We're told in Hebrews 12, 29, that our God is a consuming fire. As soon as sinners, which we all are, are brought before his glory, they're enveloped in the flames of God's wrath because he's holy. Sin is intolerable to God. It brings terrible vengeance on the sinner. That's what makes hell such a dreadful place. Do you remember how God revealed this truth to his people at Sinai? He appeared on Mount Sinai and he told the people to stand afar off and not even to so much as touch the mountain lest they be pierced through and die. And believe me, when they saw the lightning and the earthquake and the thunder and all the things that were manifest with God's presence, they did not want to come near. They may have thought about it beforehand, but not then. In fact, they afterward pled with Moses that God would not ever appear to them that way again, lest they die. And the Lord said that it was good that they said this because they needed to fear him because they were sinners and they needed to realize how they needed to obey his commandments. And do you remember what else God did at that time? He instituted the tabernacle with a place in it that was called the most holy place. It was the place of his footstool on the earth that symbolized that. And he told them not to dare to venture into that holy place also, lest they die. Only the high priest was to go in. And then only after a number of washings and ceremonies and cleansings and stuff, sacrifices to atone for his sin. And he was only to go in there once a year to make atonement for the people and for the whole tabernacle that was there. The atonement was to be offered for them so that they could be God's people. Of course, this was all symbolism, but it was symbolism of something that's real. It was symbolic of what is true, that God is all glorious, that he is a consuming fire toward all that is sinful, and that this is... um, that this is fully consistent with his glory. Even a holy man like Isaiah, when he saw a vision of God in the temple, cried out and said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He could not bear up under the glory. So you see, that's a problem. You don't want to be in glory if you can't bear up under the glory. So to comfort him, you remember that God had an angel come with a burning coal and and touch it to his lips to purge his lips. And that was just in a vision. But what will it be like to be raised up in glory before the glory of God in a permanent and real way? Well, I tell you, glory is the place that sinners do not want to go. Jesus says that they will be cast into the place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is described as a place where God's vengeance is poured out forever. Revelation 14, 11 says, And the smoke of their torment 
ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. John 3.36 says the wrath of God remains or abides on them. Who wants to be raised up in glory then? I mean, what is this? What kind of promise is this that I'm going to be brought before God in his glory if this is the result? The Bible says that we're all sinners. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. So this makes the day of resurrection of no benefit, but rather of a, a dreadful curse. So how is it that Jesus speaks of glory as the place where he wants the disciples that he has redeemed and loved to go? What is he getting at? Well, it's because his word teaches us that when we, are, we who are in him are raised up in glory, we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. That's the good news. We will not have sin charged against us in Jesus Christ. Job says, and he understood this in such a remarkable way for the revelation that he had had at that time. He says that our Redeemer lives. My Redeem- I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth. Jesus, our Redeemer, will stand for us. He will stand for the people that He has redeemed by His own blood. He will stand as the one who took responsibility for our sins, as our advocate. He will stand as the one who came to represent us all and bore our transgressions. He will stand as the one who died on the cross and was raised again because, as we saw this morning, His offering was accepted. He was raised for our justification, showing that we are justified through his offering that he, he, he offered for our sins. So he will stand, you see, not just for himself. You know, you say, oh, well, you know, that guy is standing because he didn't ever sin, Jesus, but what good is that for me? Well, he will stand, Job says, is our Redeemer is the one who redeemed us. And nothing will be able to knock you down when you have Him as your Redeemer. His resurrection is His standing again for all of our sins that were put on His account. He lives for us, and He stands for us. Listen, if you have confessed Him with your lips, believed on Him with your heart, He will confess you before the Father. He will stand up for you. He says he will. Mark, Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And Luke says that he will also confess us before the angels. In other words, he will openly declare that you are someone who belongs and has belonged to him. That's what the catechism is talking about when it says that he will openly acknowledge us. He will openly confess us. Despite what others may have said about you, oh, Job, you've done all these bad things. Despite even the times of doubt that you may have had about yourself, do I really know the Lord? Have I really trusted in him? He will declare that you are a true disciple for whom he died, if in fact that is true. What a comfort it was for Job when his friends were condemning him as a false disciple to know that the Lord was his redeemer, that he was standing in the grace of God, his redeemer. They could say whatever they wanted. And he said, I know that my redeemer lives. 
and that he will stand. He did not know Jesus by name as we do, but he knew about him from God's promises. And he trusted in him as the one who would vindicate him in that day. Satan accused Job of insincerity, and so did all of Job's friends. But Job knew that the Lord Jesus knew his heart, and that the Lord Jesus would be his advocate to proclaim his innocence as the one that he himself has redeemed. If God has redeemed you, who can accuse you? What can stand? What charge can stand against you if God has acquitted you of all of your sins? What joy will flood our souls when this is done? Just think of it. To see God in all his glory. To see him as a consuming fire. Yet to have him declare openly that he has redeemed us. To stand before that blazing fire that consumes sinners and not be consumed. Because our Redeemer lives. Then by the blood of Jesus the Lamb that was slain, we are his people forever and ever. We know, that, we know that by faith now, but what a great comfort it will be to be openly acknowledged and acquitted in His glorious presence. What bliss, what assurance, what confidence, what security will be ours. We shall be assured by this one whose glory bedazzles us that we are accepted forever. That our sin is fully purged. What Isaiah had there with him, that God, God himself purged his sin, that we can enjoy the glory forever and ever. So it won't be a bad thing to come before the glory of God if your Redeemer lives and you trust in him. This being so, there will be that we come before the God of glory and are openly acknowledged and acquitted. That being so, there will be a flood of other marvelous blessings that will make us perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. What I just talked about was a supreme blessing that we will stand before the glory of God and we will not be condemned. That will be the amazing, wonderful thing. But with that, we will have all these other blessings. So let's look at some of these other blessings. One of these great blessings will be the perfecting of our bodies in that day. The old dying body that's subject to rotting in the grave will be completely transformed. The word translated resurrect in the original Greek is anastasis, which means to stand again. You hear stasis, you think of standing. Anastasis, to stand again. So it's not reincarnation where you move from one body to another body, lose your identity, You'll still be you. You will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in your body, in your flesh, who you are. Not you're some other kind of creature before God, but it is you who stands in your flesh before God. It's a new body that he gives with new properties in that sense, but it's still the self-same body that is buried in the grave when we die. It's like it was with Jesus. His body that he had was the same body that was raised up. He showed them his wounds and the tomb where his body had been laid was empty because that was the body that was raised up. It wasn't some, he didn't go and reincarnate in some other body, but his body stood again. There was an empty tomb and that body that was crucified was no longer in the tomb. 
Job understood this quite well way back in his day when he said, after my skin is destroyed, in my flesh I shall see God. His flesh would be destroyed, but then it would be brought back again so that, it would be, so that he would be able to see God in that body. His hope was not reincarnation to change bodies. It was not disembodiment to be free of his body, to be naked, but it was resurrection. The great change in the body will be that it will become immortal. Now, we read something of that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes about this change that will occur both for those that are still alive when Christ returns as well as those who are in their graves when Christ returns. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, okay, this body that rots must put on incorruption. It must become a body that will not rot. And this mortal must put on immortality. Okay, this mortality, that means that you die, right? So this body that dies has to put on, it has to get a new character about it. It doesn't die. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So you see, clearly, it's not an exchange of bodies, but a transformation of the body that we already have so that we're freed from death and sickness and pain forever. Our bodies must be changed from their corruption and death so that they are fit to stand before God. Think about that. It is not fitting for a weak, rotting, dying body or even a deformed body or a body with sickness or a body that is with a malfunctioning brain or anything like that to stand before God because God is holy and pure and perfect. He didn't make our bodies like that with those deformities. Those came about because of our sin. That's the corruption of the body. And he would be done with all that corruption. Sometimes believers are troubled when they read the Old Testament and they see that God didn't allow you know, dwarfs and hunchbacks to come into his um, sanctuary or people with hemorrhages or women during their, their monthly cycle and people with leprosy or even those that had had contact with a dead body to come before him at his temple. We look at that and we think, well, that doesn't seem very nice. It doesn't seem quite right to exclude these people. It doesn't seem fair and compassionate for God to do that. But you see, when we think that way, we're thinking in earthly terms. All of these things of the temple were to associate the idea that what comes before God is always incorruptible and perfect. That's why they had all the washings and all the baths and all those kind of things. Because those things, like hemorrhages and even the trouble that women have with their monthly cycle, all those things, they, they were part of the curse. And God was saying, the curse is not before me. You see, God doesn't have cursed things before his glory. It's actually a wonderful picture of heaven. 
and these persons were that these persons were excluded from the temple because it tells us all the leper and the hunchback or whoever that when we get to God's true house in glory we won't have any of these infirmities that was what was being depicted in the temple they will be a thing of the past we will be perfectly whole and perfectly complete before God in glory. It didn't mean that these persons were excluded. It meant that you won't have that body before God for all eternity that has all of those issues. And it testified to everyone. Just as it is sometimes customary for people who come before a king to have a bath and be given new clothing, so we will be washed, given a new body and new clothing when we come before God. We find this washing symbolism also in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament with baptism. Isn't this wonderful news? Just think about what it meant for Job as his body, as we're told in Job 2, 7 through 8, was covered with painful boils. Job, when you come before God, your body's not going to be covered with those painful boils anymore. That will all be a thing of the past. Nothing comes before God like that. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he was scraping himself with, with his broken pottery, with all the, the, the sitting in a pile of ashes because of the great discomfort that was all over him. But when he stands before God in resurrection flesh, there'll be nothing of that. It would not do to have a man in that condition before the glory of God. Such things belong to the world of sin and misery. They do not belong to heaven in the place of God's kingdom of glory. And so with all your infirmities, whatever they may be, you will be free of them all. What a beautiful picture there was of this also when Jesus walked on the earth. What was his way of attending the funeral? He raised the dead, didn't he? You can't be dead in the presence of Jesus Christ. What when a leper came? The leper was cleansed. What when there was a storm? The storm was put to rest. Jesus Christ, when someone came with a withered arm, their arm was restored. When the lame came, they were able to walk. When the blind came, they were able to see. When the sick came, they were healed immediately. This is how Jesus works. And of course, it is not just our bodies that must be perfected to stand before him. Let me say one more thing here, though. We, we need to be patient, you see, in all of these things, waiting for that time when, when he brings that, that blessing to us. We're in this world now, and we, we need the afflictions of this world, and they come randomly to different people. That's where Job's friends went wrong. Job, you have this because you did something evil. That wasn't true. And God sometimes has us to to learn and grow through many afflictions. Sometimes it can be in our body. Sometimes it can be in other ways. But it's all part of God's plan in preparing us for glory. We need to have our eyes on glory. That's where Job's comfort was, was the glory that was, he was to obtain when he came before God at last. Now, of course, it's not just our bodies that must be perfected to stand before him. We saw this last week because we looked at the intermediate state that our spirits will also be perfected when we come before God. So we saw what happens to a believer as soon as he dies. His body, we saw, goes to the grave. 
okay, waiting for the resurrection when the body is going to be made perfect, and the soul or the spirit returns to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 tells us that to be absent from the body, okay, when your spirit or soul leaves your body, when you die, then is, it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And as soon as that person's spirit goes to be with the Lord, what happens to it? It's perfected. Sin is purged out of it. The spirit or the body cannot go before God unless it is perfected. It could be no enjoyment of God if your spirit is still corrupted by sin. Nor could God have any enjoyment of you if you are still corrupted by sin. But what if we are still alive when Jesus returns? Well, we have already seen that our bodies will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we read that in Corinthians, uh, that they'll be changed from mortality to immortality on that day. But at the same time, in that case, if we are here until Jesus returns, our spirits will also be immediately changed in that day if we are in Christ, if our Redeemer lives and stands for us, if He is our Redeemer. If He's not our Redeemer, then it's a different story. But just think of this. No more sin forever. That's the hope that we have. That's the blessing that God has promised to us. Now, we've looked at that along the way. Even when we looked at adoption and things like that, we saw that that's where it leads. You see, now we're looking at the blessings that come, not in this life, but in the life to come. So we'll be able to see God. We won't be clouded by our sin and our, and our perception of things anymore. We'll be able to understand His grace We'll be able to delight in his perfection. As I mentioned earlier this morning, we will delight in the cross. We'll, we'll get it. We'll fully understand it. We'll be free to love and to serve the Lord without the terrible burden of our, our selfishness and our cold hearts that, that really don't care about other people the way we should. Our covetousness and our malice that gets in the way of everything, our anger that flares up, all of this will be completely purged. We will enter the realms of glory where perfect, pure, and holy love saturates everything. As Jesus prayed to the Father that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. That same love, that same beautiful love will be in us when we enter glory. And I must mention as well another thing that we are not the only ones that will be perfected. Okay, so our bodies, and we saw our spirits will be perfected in that day. But there's something else that's going to be perfected too in that day. The earth itself will be transformed in that day. The reason that we have hurricanes and blizzards and floods and famines and failed crops is because sin came into the world. We sinned, and God not only sentenced us to death, but he also cursed the ground for our sake. Romans 8 makes it quite clear that that is also going to be turned around when the glory of God comes here, when when the new heaven and the new earth, where God's present, there will no longer be a curse here. Romans 8 says, Uh, The whole creation is eagerly waiting for the sons of God to be raised up. Because when they are, then that creation is going to be also restored to perfection. So listen to Romans 8, 19. 
gives us for the earnest expectation of the creature eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Remember what we saw about the revealing of the sons of God? We're openly acknowledged and acquitted as those who truly belong to Jesus, who have been redeemed by him. So the, the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility or vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty or freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So the renewal of the creation will be necessary for the completion of our happiness. What would be the glory being before the God of glory if we were still in a world of famines and earthquakes and destructive fires and all of these sorts of things? As Jesus promised, we will truly inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. It will be ours. As Psalm 8, 6 puts it, God has made us to have dominion over the works of his hands and has put all things under our feet. And it goes on to say in another place that, that we don't see everything put under his feet now, but we will see that. No longer will the earth bring a mixture of trouble and blessing to us. It will bring unmitigated blessing. So we will be perfect, perfected in body and spirit, and the earth will also be perfected. But Job got it right, didn't he? What was the greatest blessing? Let's go back and remember, where did we start with all of this? That in our flesh, we will see God. All the other blessings flow out of that. Pure, unmitigated blessing will be in our bodies and in our souls and in our world because the God of glory will be there. Job is delighted with the hope that he himself will see God in his glory with his own eyes. He makes it very vivid that with my eyes and not somebody else's, these eyes that are in this body that's got all this trouble and has these friends around it and these problems with my children being killed and all these things, these eyes are going to see the glory of God with my Redeemer standing. Listen again to his words. Job 19.25 For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within that, that this body and this sinful man would be able to stand before the God of glory who comes to the earth that we will be able to be before him in his glory. When Jesus was here before, he wasn't in his glory, was he? He revealed glory, but he's coming in glory when he returns. Does your heart, like Job, yearn within you? 
for these things, to see his glory. I mean, how dull everything else is compared to this. Samuel Rutherford said, put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden in one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing it would be, that would be. And yet, it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Less than a drop of rain compared to all the... Is, is all that glory that he described compared to the beauty of our Lord. My brothers and sisters, there will be no boredom. Boredom. There will be no sadness there. The very purpose of eternal life is to know God and to enjoy God, to stand again before Him in glory. This is all our happiness, our crown, our glory of rejoicing. This is our glorious hope that cheers us even in the most dismal and dark days like Job experienced. Let us eagerly pray that God's kingdom would come and the glory of that kingdom. And if you're not in Christ, then I urge you to come to him at once. The last thing you want to see is to see his glory if you are in your sin and guilt with no redeemer. It will be intolerable. There will be no escape for you at that time. Now is the day of escape. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to come to Jesus Christ and to rest in Him alone. You are a sinner, just as I am. But if you have not come to Christ to be pardoned and restored to new life, you will find God in that day the glorious God, to be a consuming fire that will burn forever. Be sure then that you can say with Job, again, Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. No one has this benefit of our own, by our own works or because of our own goodness. All the benefits that we have been looking at, all of the benefits we've been looking at for the last three months are benefits we have because we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. If you do not look to Him for these benefits, you will have a crisis eternity rather than a blessed eternity. But if you simply look to Him to save you, you will have them all. And you will be raised up in glory, openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Please stand and let's pray. Our merciful Father in heaven, how we praise you that you have told us something of what the glory is that is to come. 
Lord, we know that glory is a very difficult thing for us now in our sin because truly you are a consuming fire to that which is corrupt and sinful. Your glory burns and, and, and torments that which is sinful. It is completely contrary and disagreeable to, to all that you are who are without corruption. But we praise you, O Lord, that, that when that day comes, that we go to be with you in Jesus Christ, that because, of our, because our Redeemer lives and because he stands and because he is our advocate, that in that day there will be no condemnation. Nothing will be charged to us. We will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. We will be made perfectly blessed to the full enjoying of God to all eternity. We thank you, Lord, that these bodies that are often troubled with pain and other infirmities, that these bodies will be raised up afresh, glorious, immortal, incorruptible. And we praise you, O Lord, that our spirits that have so much sin and so much deviance and corruption and, Lord, just coldness toward you, that that will all be a thing of the past. That in before your presence and before our Redeemer, we will be made whole and complete. And we praise you also that the world that we live in, that Lord, truly it's going to be also renewed and restored to its pristine state. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us hope that when we do have trouble in this life, there's some in this room that, that suffer with, with pain or sickness or affliction. Father, there's some here that, well, all of us here, we struggle with the, the sin that we have and the, the, the corruption that is in our very spirit. We praise you, O oh Lord, that, that these will all be past. We struggle with the society that we live in, the corruption that is in the world, the sin that is here. And Father, we're contributors to that sin and corruption here. But we thank you, Lord, that we will only be contributors to what is glorious in the day of resurrection if we are in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, please hasten the day of your return. Help us to be patient and to wait for it. Help us to be prepared when you come in your glory because we are in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would be found in him, not resting in our own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, but in the righteousness that is by faith in him who represented us and who gave himself for our sins and also lived as one to, uh, to represent us before you. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. Receive then the blessing of the Lord. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.